This episode of the Series A podcast is brought to you by the Blockchain Founders Fund. The Blockchain Founders Fund is a global entrepreneurship and investment fund that focuses on adding value to emerging technology and blockchain projects with real-world applications. The Blockchain Founders Fund supports seasoned and first-time entrepreneurs across the key business function with a hands-on intensive go-to-market venture program. Now on to this fantastic new episode. All right. So today we are speaking with Dane Callow, who is partner at Brooks Hill Partners based in Boston. Dane, welcome to Series A, the podcast where we talk about venture capital. How are you doing this, uh, this morning in beautiful Boston? Uh, doing great. Uh, it's been a fabulous week. Um, you know, working hard, kind of seeing some very, very interesting companies. And so I'm excited to chat with you. Okay. So in the COVID era, do you actually see the companies or you, you see them through Zoom? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, as the world gets back to normal, we'll eventually be, be visiting. Um, right now, it's mostly Zoom. And I think, I think it's interesting because it, it almost... I mean, obviously, when you need to visit and meet in person, that kind of thing. But with Zoom, it is something where like availability has, like you're always available to some extent, which is a, um, up and a down, I suppose. But no, it's been all Zoom for now. Okay, so uh, let's start by letting our audience know a little bit about you and your background. How did you end up in venture capital? And then we can talk uh, about uh, Brooks Hill. Uh, you can tell us what you guys do over there. That sounds great. So uh, my background has been in, you know, health tech um, and investment for a long time. Uh, my father runs Boston Millennia Partners, which was one of the um, um, uh, first people in Parixel. Uh, they have arthrosurface, et cetera, have a lot of um, kind of just family exposure to it uh, when I was young. Then out of undergrad, um, went to Cambridge Associates to do uh, non-marketable alternative asset consulting and advisory work there. From there, went to Tuck. Knew that I wanted to get back into kind of the, the healthcare space. I feel like the innovations within the healthcare space are constant. I also feel like just due to the nature of the space, oftentimes it's a little slower to adopt, um, rightfully so. But I felt like, you know, something that I wanted to get back into, did my internship um, at Johnson & Johnson, um, and then went to Trinity Partners, a consultancy specializing in healthcare. Uh, from there, went to a group called the Precision for Medicine Group to do more of the acquisition within healthcare. Um, enjoyed it a lot, but I kind of realized at the time, if I wanted to get back into seeing some of these highly innovative companies, it was going to be difficult because of the nature of consulting to some extent. And now I was doing angel work while that was going on, but within consulting, it's rare that you work with the small innovative startups because they don't have the deep pockets that the Pfizer's, the J&J's, the Genentech's of the world have. And if you're gonna be a large consultancy like the places that I was at, the project started, I, I loved, both the places that I was at, but the project started to get a tiny bit repetitive and it wasn't 
we weren't seeing the AI, we weren't seeing the quantum simulation, we weren't seeing the EHRs or the, you know, remote patient monitorings or anything like that. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, how do we, how do we do that? And I decided, you know, hey, I can do the consulting stuff easy. That's, that's fine. And I can do the investment stuff easy. So why not? It's either going to be now where I try and start something or it's going to be in 20 years. And so talk to my wife, uh, which is obviously really important because uh, she's my partner as well. And we, I mean, in life, not in the company, but um, said, hey, you know, if it works, it works. And knock on wood, it's been working for the last four, four plus years. So that's how I got in. Okay. It's good that you got the go ahead. From yeah. Your wife. Well, you know, I think, I think the people who are in charge, um, you, you got to make sure you talk to them too. So, so <laughs> then you mentioned uh, some angel investing. Was that also in uh, the healthcare sector? Uh, actually, so yes and no. Um, I was part at the time of two angel groups, um, which I'm still part of, not as much as I once was just because of the nature of, of our work. But um, Boston Harbor Angels, which is the largest angel group in um, the Massachusetts area and gets a lot of very, you know, some great deal flow, a lot of great people who are involved, a lot of really smart people. Um, but probably only, I don't know, a third of their deal flow is healthcare. And a lot of it is either devices or um, kind of treatments, which is not something that we uh, will invest in. And um, so that was good. And then the second one is Mask Medical Angels. And so that one is 100% healthcare. Um, generally, it's split up kind of a third, a third, a third in devices, um, treatments, and then tech. And it's, I mean, I can't say enough about both groups. I think they're fabulous. I will say, I think the Mass Medical Angels group there, um, the people, you know, they're smartest. I mean, you got a room full of the smartest people in the room um, asking some really great questions involved in healthcare. So those are the two groups. You mentioned in the same sentence, the words Johnson and the Pfizer. I think these yeah. are uh, words that the, the whole world are talking about currently. Um, as an investor in healthcare, where do you see this going? I mean, the situation with the vaccines, are we going to be doing vaccines every year? And what is your opinion on uh, protein versus mRNA technologies? You know, I, it's a great question. I think it's on everyone's mind. Um, my, you know, based on my standpoint in the, in the pieces that I've read, I would assume that um, whether it's a booster or it's something similar to a traditional flu vaccine, um, I don't think that we're going to be just going back to the norm. Um, I think that this has lasted a lot longer than people had thought, and that's our own fault. Um, but this isn't this isn't the soapbox to talk on it about. But I I think that um, I think that things have changed. I think a booster or um, a vaccine of some sort, based on the mutations. I think that if we were able to nip this in the bud six months ago, that would have changed things. In my personal opinion, uh, we weren't, and um, I think that that has had some long-term effects potentially. So, and in regards to mRNA versus viral vector, um, you know, <laughs> maybe this is just naivete, but the way I look at it is the the way that we can get 
the most people vaccinated regardless of mechanism uh, yes there's an efficacy aspect of it but at the same time i think you know for me if the side effect profile is low it gets people vaccinated prevents the um in time to prevent the mutations and uh minimize the spread then to me it can be a glass of lemonade for all i care like that's kind of the important part i do think i am in the mrna camp um just because of the nature and the makeup of um, um, COVID. Uh, I think that's probably the best way to go about it. That being said, I think the option to have, and this is just basic market economics, the option to have two different methods of action is just good for the market. Like it's just being able to say you have 100% of mRNA, fine, so be it. I mean, that's great. But like having an mRNA plus a viral vector it it only boosts the market by having multiple MOA. Hey. You're on mute. Okay, so we were cut off. Uh, yeah, let's uh, continue our conversation. Uh, I, we were talking about mRNA, but let's switch gears and uh, let me ask you, uh, what what do you guys do in uh, Brooks Hill? Uh, yeah. How many are you in the team, and uh, yeah. what kind of investments do you make? Yeah, so um, uh, Brooks Hill, I started it um, as we talked a little bit about before, just as as a as something that was exciting for me in a way to see some innovation. What what I also wanted to make sure we did was something that was a different. Um, different in a sense to both the consulting and advisory support, but also difference in terms of venture to some extent. Um, what we're trying to do is we have LPs, um, but the model would be more similar to an evergreen type of fund than a typical venture, meaning that you look at consultancies and they're taking, I don't know, call it an 85% margin on, on the work that they're doing over the long run. And what we're doing instead is taking, I don't know, 25% margin maybe. And then the remainder of everything we then stick into basically an investment parking lot for lack of a better term, right? So we 50% of the time will do innovation and you know new product planning, market M&A, um, L&A work for consulting. And then the other half we're doing investing. And the, that capital that we then have from the consulting goes into this investment parking lot. So we're constantly, like every day, looking through new opportunities for seed, uh, pre-seed, and you know, small A round um, healthcare technology startups. And it allows us the ability to, I mean, in the long run, I would essentially say that it's not something where we have to raise a typical fund every you know, five years, we can have that ability to 
consistently roll forward. Now, I'm not saying that we're not going to raise a fund. I think, you know, over the next 24 months, we'll probably raise like an official funds. Um, I'll have my partner focus on the consulting and I'll focus on the venture. But to be honest, we've, we've had two exits out of the eight companies that we've invested in over the last two years. Um, it, it also is one of these situations where um, I feel like the advisory work that we do for large biotech and pharma only makes our analysis of the potential investments better. And everything's above board, but at the same time, we understand, okay, well, what, you know, where is the biopharma market lacking in regards to innovation or technology or adoption? Where is there a specific white space? And also on top of it, of the companies that we're speaking with who can fill those gaps. Um, again, it's all above board, but at the same time, it's knowing and understanding, um, you know, the problem from one side and the solution from the other, um, it makes both sides of our work better. It's a one plus one equals three. So that's what we do. We have uh, uh, five people at the moment. We've got two interns that will hopefully become full-time this summer. Um, and um, yeah, so that's that's mainly what we do. We always, you know, it's, it's seed focused mostly. Uh, during COVID, we have been getting involved a little bit more in the A rounds. Um, just because, for lack of a better term, it's a little bit more stable, um, the larger rounds are, and um, yeah. So the, um, the money that you invest in the startups, uh, it comes mm -hmm. from your advisory uh, proceeds, or are you using uh, limited partner um, funds to invest so in it, the startups? It, it will actually be both to some extent. So what happens is... Uh, we will typically do anywhere between 100 to 300,000 um, in regards to investments in the seed. And, but sometimes that's, you know, if, especially when we're looking at the A, sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes it's a situation where it's minimum million dollar ticket, but it's a company that we absolutely love. We've done the diligence on it. And it's something where we can either try and get a SPV together or a different syndicate or, you know, have an agreement where we're bringing in capital, thus justifying a lower ticket. But if that's not the case, what we do then is we'll call capital and the, and we'll, we'll follow what would quote unquote be the typical venture where uh, model where we'll pull together our investment team, we'll meet with the LPs, et cetera. And so we also will, so the answer is essentially primarily it's, uh, the proceeds and the and the profits from the advisory work, but that being said, the LPs and the high net worth individuals that we have behind us have allowed us the flexibility to not miss innovation. I would uh, is probably the best way to look at it. Um, so, and um, this might be this might sound uh, very simple, but uh, how how do you find LPs? Uh, <laughs> Uh, grunt work um, and uh, a reputation, I would say. I think the way that I have looked at it and what has been taught to me, God, 15 years ago or something at Cambridge was if you, this is probably a crass way to put it, but like if you make someone money, they're going to come back to you to make more money type of thing. And 
that's always why I've looked at our work like do good work, period. Like that's the end of it. It's like if we can show whether it's the advisory work we're doing or the venture work, it's we're going to find the companies that other people haven't found yet. And I'll talk about, we have a health tech innovation atlas, which is something huge that we're working on. And I'll talk about that in a bit, but the idea is find the diamonds in the rough, but make sure they're diamonds and not, you know, cubic zirconia type of thing where you do your own diligence. And the hope is that, especially in this climate, that they will be recognized. You know, we put in a couple of years of also work with them. And that's something that I think differentiates. I think a lot of venture firms will say we work with our startups, but you know, typically what happens is you there, the, the partners will work with the bookends. They'll work with the ones that are troubled and then they'll work with the ones that are the best, but then everything in between kind of gets laid on the wayside, uh, wayside. And that's not the case for us. It's, you know, I have biweekly meetings with three or four of our portfolio companies. I mean, prior, prior to the exits of our last two, meeting with them on a weekly basis and um so i think the idea is what i'm trying to say is like if you can differentiate um and not try and rush to some extent your track record will speak for itself and people will be happy to introduce you to your various networks i think in regards to high net worth individuals and private families and, and private offices that's more of a um that's where the network and the relationship and your quality of work and your experience matters because it's not like PitchBook or some of these other places where you can just get lists of people that it just doesn't exist. Um, so it's, it's really doing good work, having good track record and being able to people happy or taking pride um, in introducing you um, to their networks and building from there. And the entrepreneurs that you meet with bi-weekly, they are mostly scientists or uh, business Actually, people? Actually, no. So most of them are have have exposure to healthcare. But um, to be honest, we don't we don't invest in biopharma just because um, one, the position would get squashed to some extent um, in the long run, and two, you know, we like to be able to control for risk as much as possible. And I think with biopharma, while while we are very, you know, very experienced with biopharma, um, just because of our consulting work, um, it's something where seven to ten years at nine hundred million dollars is not something that's like we don't have that type of funds. Like we don't have four hundred million dollars to be able to do that. So um, a lot of the times, actually, the people that I'm talking with are either the CTOs or the CEOs who have the tech experience or vice versa, the ones that have the healthcare experience. And um, it's, you know, whether we're talking about prepping for another raise or we're talking about which boutique banks would be the best to select for an IPO or, hey, I have a problematic, problematic employee, how do I deal with them? Um, so a lot of times it's either tech or like a MD, PhD type of like, but specific not practicing type of thing so mm -hmm. um, besides the advisory uh, let's focus on the venture part how does yeah, uh, how does brooks hill make money and how do your lps make money well in the same fashion to some extent as um, 
uh, a typical VC would, you know, it's um, uh, two and 20 for us. Um, we don't have the two aspect of it just because what happens is we have that, the consulting advisory work, which is, is services revenue. Um, so we generally will take a portion, we'll take the 20% off of the top on the investments that we make, especially if it's something where we actually leverage the LP capital and we have a bigger position. Um, in the scenarios where we leverage um, um, the services revenue to make the investments, we'll make 95% of that. We actually will still compensate the LPs um, on all of our portfolio companies, just because again, this is something where I'm not in this to, honestly, I'm not in this to get a boat or anything like that, like the crap that goes on, uh, you know, that people hate about this world, but I'm literally in it to, to see more things, to make more investments. And so the support from our LPs is extremely important and we want to continue to show them that we're finding these right companies. So that's how they'll make money. Um, they'll obviously make more when we take a larger position, um, but um, we will generally, so for the last two exits, we had 95% um, of, of the capital that came in. Okay. Well, I think you are young to get a boat, but in 10 years, it wouldn't be bad. <laughs> Just no, I, What did they say? The best day that you buy a boat is, or the, the best thing about a boat is the day you buy it and the day you sell it. No, I, uh, two of my associates say, I'll, I'll let, I'll, I'll, they can take me on their boat. <laughs> uh, is your deal flow coming from the Cambridge area or are you looking at uh, targets anywhere you find them? It's it's all over. Uh, we've been talking recently. We're in diligence right now with a company called Dados, which is an Israeli-based company. Um, we are speaking with a quantum simulation company out of the UK. We've got another one that we're talking to in Montreal. Um, I think a lot of them are generally from one side or the other of the US. That's probably 80% of it. Um, you know, it, in a perfect world, we would, we would be able to invest mostly in the Boston, New York, DC areas, just because it's easy to get there and, and see them. And there's no, the time zones aren't challenging, but um, you know, one of the reasons why we speak with these people, you know, especially the two Israeli companies that we've been speaking with, there's some really great stuff that just is beyond what's happening here. I mean, we've, so this health tech innovation Atlas is essentially what comes from all of the deal sourcing that we do. Um, and, you know, some of the innovation that we're seeing, it just isn't happening in the same fashion as that's happening in the U S or that's happening in Dallas versus New York or what have you. So it's all over. In terms of the fund that you mentioned before, what kind of uh, uh, money are you looking to raise or thinking about? Uh, well, to be honest, it's one of those things where uh, it's a great question because, and this is one of the reasons why I haven't raised earlier, um, is because you want to have, so if we're going to raise a fund, I need to be able to put 100% of my time to it. Then there's no way around that. You're not going to have an LP outside of the, the network that I have now, which came from my personal network. But outside of that network, they're going to want you 100% of your time. And that's the point. It's, you know, why am I going to put in capital and you're going to spend 50% of your time somewhere else? And so that basically essentially puts me back a little bit into the typical VC model of, okay, well, if I'm going to be spending time and pulling the associate and principal time 
to venture a hundred percent of the time, we need to be to build a to have a large enough fund that that two percent can be, you know, enough for development and growth of the company. So, I mean, I would target fifty to seventy-five million, and I guess one of the points is that's a lofty goal for a first-time fund for someone, you know, the company, a young company to some extent, and so. That's one of the main reasons why we've been spending the last couple of years proving the business model that we have and showing that the health tech atlas that we're building is something that differentiates ourselves and we can find those companies and it will make raising easier when we go and we say, okay, look, here's here's the actual IRR. There's no, you know, half-baked calculations on the back end to show, you know, our our returns and these are the companies and these are the rounds and this is the future, et cetera. And so, um, but 50 to 50 to 75, I think would be a good amount. So it just doesn't make sense elsewhere. Like why raise a $10 million fund? Because, you know, I don't think that we, we just wouldn't be able to access everything that we wanted to be able to access. And we wouldn't be able to show the returns to the, to the LPs to some extent. And uh, these are very interesting points, uh, I must say, uh, especially the thing you said about your time. Um, yep. which ob obviously, I, I would say LPs care about uh, results, but, yeah. I but also about what you do with your time. Um, yeah. uh, sorry, did, did you have to add anything on that? Oh, well, so, you know, the LPs that we have right now, so, I mean, it gets a little bit into how you raise your first fund. I think um, Liam Donahue from um, 406, I think what they've done in their first fund was they put, um, there's a little bit of the model that we're looking at, but their first funds was actually their own capital. And Liam, if you hear this and I'm wrong, I apologize. I, I read it in a, um, I think, um, Bus Gang's book or something. But the idea was essentially, if, if I read it correctly, that they did a fund with their own capital and then um, they raised, but in the raise, they allowed the LPs to access the returns or the companies from the original fund that they built themselves. And it's an innovative model um, to do. It is a double-edged sword to some extent because as you raise forward, what are the next LPs going to ask? And do you cut your nose off despite your face with trying to get that first round so much? Um, clearly, Liam didn't. 406 is, is a fabulous place. Uh, and Liam is a, an unbelievable guy. And um, so clearly it's, it's, it's succeeded. Um, so that may be something that we're looking at in regards to the LPs. It's, I don't know, if you don't make them happy, then you're not going to have a fund. So, <laughs> so if, if you want to raise 70, would you like an LP to have uh, 30% of that or have smaller LPs combined? Oh, well, I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, these are all what ifs to some extent. I think also on top of it, one thing that, you know, the larger VCs, obviously, 
I can't put myself in their shoes because I'm not there. So, but I, I have education tells me that, you know, the larger LPs have that ability to, to have, you know, a smaller group of LPs. I don't think that would be the case for us. But one thing I think that's really important is that you want the right people around the table. And if you think about it in the entrepreneurship world, it's almost the same thing for the venture world to some extent in my eyes. You want investors for your portfolio companies to add value. You don't want dumb money. You want educated people around the table who can help them grow. And that's almost the same way that I look at it with LPs. I would hope that the limited partner network that we would have would be able to build the company and be a part of the company. And uh, if we have an LP who's, you know, family medicine or a, a physician, the idea is we should be able to hopefully call them and talk to them or hopefully have them introduce us to a network to, to, to better the portfolio. It's, it's almost an ecosystem play where the better the group is, the better the whole, like, you know, they can only benefit us. And that's the way I would look at it. So I wouldn't, I'd be fine theoretically if someone wanted to take 30% provided there's, they're adding value, but also on top of it, I think there has to be a ceiling on the amount that we would have, but provided there's a, uh, each group, each LP is adding a different type of value, I think I would be happy if we had a number of them. Granted, there's a lot of back-end work that has to happen with them, and it can be a little bit frustrating, but at the same time, if they're adding value, I would be excited about that. Okay, so let me do a hypothesis for my last question here. Uh, yeah. You are, uh, your firm is a healthcare investor. Say we are two guys or girls, and uh, we think that we have invented the cure of cancer, and we come to you for investment. Uh, what do we need to, to say to persuade you to invest uh, seed stage of 300K? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I will say uh, <laughs> we get a lot of very interesting cures for cancer. I, I, I think obviously it's, it represents the, the largest area of, I mean, there's some really fantastic stuff going on. But that being said, um, the things that are really, really important for us, and we tend to do a larger diligence just because it's very important for us. I think obviously the team is extremely important, especially when it comes to health tech and digital health. You need to have that mesh between the tech expert and the healthcare expert. I don't think that, you know, I don't think one is going to win over the other necessarily, um, but you need to have both. You can't have a healthcare guy who only, or, or gal, who only has a tech background and just applies their tech background to healthcare, just because healthcare is so much different than everything else. Um, and vice versa, I don't think a physician has the ability to go directly into the tech world. Uh, it's just not the same. And so we look at the management team, what their experience is. Um, is it something where, um, uh, you know, what does the market look like? Who are the, because you have to think about it like rising tide raises all boats. So you can, you can have a company that isn't the absolute best in the market, but if it's in a growing market, you're still going to make money for your LPs. So, but if you have a company that's fabulous in the market, but the market's tiny, 
then you're also not going to make money for the LPs. So we uh, we take a look at the market. We take a look at the level of innovation, the level of applicability. So what does the patient population look like? What does the undiagnosed patient population look like? What does the research pipeline look like that's coming? Is there a leapfrog that's going to happen in six years? Um, something that's going to make your tech obsolete. Uh, so those are, you know, team, market, um, and then product science, obviously. I think one thing also that I don't think it's talked about a ton um, is this, the investment syndicate, um, who is supporting you. You know, I mentioned it before, you don't want dumb money around the table. So, you know, who, who will be investing with us, I think is important. Um, and being able to speak with them, um, I think is very, very important. Do you have revenue? I think is also important. Now, obviously a drug in development wouldn't, um, but if you take this and apply it to health tech, that's important. So do you have pilots? What does the data look like? For us, you know, I think, I don't know, you know, we're an East Coast firm, which I think is different than a West Coast firm to some extent, but we, the more information that we can get, the better as far as I'm concerned. So, um, you know, I, I alluded, and we haven't talked necessarily about deal flow that much, but one of the things that I think is very, very interesting is getting a true, getting a true understanding of what each of the markets look like before you necessarily even speak to a company about investments. And I think that's important. It's making that differentiation and getting further down the deal funnel before you burn, you know, a ton of time on due diligence. So, mm -hmm. These are excellent uh, remarks, Dane. Um, our audience is uh, mostly entrepreneurs, but also some early mm -hmm. stage uh, venture capitalists or uh, wannabe yeah. venture capitalists. So uh, would you have any closing remarks uh, for our audience? Um, I don't know, let's see. I, uh, I'm trying to think of a lot of the stuff that's been told to me, which I, which I go to mostly on the personal front. Um, you know, I, I think, I think, per, uh, you know, perseverance is extremely important. Um, you know, see yourself succeeding. Um, don't act, especially for, so the, the, the advice to some extent would be different for each one, but I think at least for the the investors, the angel investors, uh, or what have you, um, don't get frustrated at. Don't make a decision to invest because you haven't invested in a little while, right? So if you, the way I've always looked at it is, if we do the diligence and say no, that's just as good as doing the diligence and saying yes, because if we don't feel confident that it's a smart investment then it's almost a double benefit to say no, because you're not only you know, freezing up that capital, but at the same time, you have the ability to go elsewhere. And I have seen that where people will make investments or lower their criteria um, based on, on something that they seem, that seems exciting. I, I think um, I always liken it to buying a house to some extent. Like you need to see 50, 100 houses before you kind of really understand what you're looking for. It's the same thing with deal flow. It's see as many deals as possible, even if it's not, I mean, stay within the same sector, but we look at pitch decks from 
biopharma, even if we're not going to invest. The reason why is because we want to make sure that we're seeing and we're mastering what we're looking for. So I think that's important. And then for the startups, I think everyone reads about the good stuff and and the easy stuff, right? Oh, well, XYZ company got 10 million in seed funding and they have zero revenue. Or X, you know, A, B, and C company just, you know, receives, you know, AZ funding and out of the blue and we tried to get, nobody ever talks about the grind, about how difficult it actually is and how many companies have to grind before they actually, you know, get an article on TechCrunch or something of that nature. So I think positive attitude, perseverance, and, and, and really planning for the long term um, is really important because people, I think sometimes the startups can get frustrated with themselves that they're not that article, that, that everything doesn't fall from the sky. I have always been a very big proponent of just do work, right? Like do good work. And if you do that and, you know, you do good work, you focus, you plan appropriately, a lot of the times that will show. Like I personally feel like bootstrapping and then getting capital based on that is better than getting capital based on vaporware. That's always been my thought process. So, Dane, uh... Thank you for being with us. Yeah. Uh, well, George, I, I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. And um, I, I look forward to chatting with you again, either on the podcast or, or elsewhere. And uh, thank you again for, for letting, me, letting me join you and, and chat. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Enjoy your day. Catch in a bit. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye.